Welcome to podcast number four, Suicide. Now, as usual, this is not a publication of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it doesn't necessarily represent any of the opinions of the leaders. This is my opinion, my own. Um, I am not a psychologist, psychiatrist, anything of the sort. These are my own experiences and opinions. It's just my experience and thoughts, having been a long-term member of the church, living with bipolar and depression. So if we're going to talk about depression and bipolar, then we must confront it. The it being suicide. I don't like to quote statistics because they are cold and they don't tell the personal stories. Suicide in and of itself is a personal act, not a random statistic as if I could put 100 people in a room and 15 of them would, commit, would attempt suicide. Suicide is as much about the disease as it is about the support system and a multitude of other factors. But I will start with some cold hard facts, which at least shows that mental illness causes very serious distress in people. So let's start with bipolar. About 30 to 50 out of 100 people who have the bipolar disease will likely attempt suicide. Women will attempt it three times more often, but men are four times more likely to succeed. Now, bipolar occurs in the general population, about 2.8%, 3%, and about equally among men and women. Now, depression is by far more prevalent at 5 to 8% of the population at any one time, so it's about two to four times the rate of bipolar. But the rate of suicide is about 15%. The attempt rate is also lower. The point of all this is simply that mental illness brings a significant increased risk of suicide, and bipolar brings a much higher risk. That is all I want anyone to get out of those numbers. Numbers are cold, and they just don't represent the stories. If you looked at each suicide and attempt, I believe that you would see significant differences when somebody has a support network, has accepted a disease, is willing to work with doctors, and so forth. This is not to say that people with good networks and great support don't commit suicide. They do, and it causes great pain. The great tragedy is that people look for somewhere to point fingers. They want a cause, someone or something to blame. They want one event, one point in time, one person. They want something or someone to which they can assign blame, and then direct anger, resentment, grief, and every other emotion that goes with it. Why? We're just built that way as humans. That's what we want. The desire for justice is what I would refer to it as, is relatable everywhere in life. When your sports team loses, there is often a focus on one play, not the multitude of errors and events throughout the game. Same is true when we see a mistake at a government level or in our own work environment, and almost anywhere a mistake or error or loss is noted. We deeply desire that one moment, that one person. Why? Human nature. We don't want to see the complexity, the nuances, the many issues that were involved. Why is this? Because we would have to admit that it would have taken several steps and interventions to stop the event. And that makes us feel helpless. Not sure why, but helplessness is one of the emotions we fear the most. We want one thing we can do so that it doesn't happen again. We want a law, a rule, a magic button to stop it all. Deep desire for this is actually one of the greatest problems affecting suicide. If there were one particular problem that we could, if there were one particular solution that we could 
do to fix all and stop all suicides, we would certainly have done it by now. Most suicides have a multitude of cascading issues within the individual's life that cause the event. Yes, there is always a trigger event, but it's like blaming the final snowflake of an avalanche. Was it really the snowflake's fault that it was the final piece of the snow that caused the whole mountain of ice to tumble down the mountainside? We spend so much time on the trigger event, blaming, shaming, isolating, trying to find justice. By the way, none of that will really provide you any peace of mind. What we should be talking about is avalanche control. We should be talking about the avalanche before it becomes uncontrolled and unavoidable. So that is the main reason we're talking about suicide today. Suicide is complex. And while we deeply desire to blame, shame, and sometimes maim the trigger event, there should never be blame. I don't care if everything seems to point to one person or moment. The faster you get to, the, to that point of the idea that it takes many events, the better off you will be. I know that it's difficult to look back and see all the moments you missed and all of the evidence that really didn't seem like evidence at the time. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but often of no real value unless you seek to help others. If you're just going to torment yourself with it, it is really of no value at all. The past is only good for three things. Remembering the good moments in life, a quick reminder that you have been down that road before and shouldn't be on the same path, and life lessons you might pass on to someone else. Everything else is of little value to you or anyone else. Thinking about every moment as if you had the perspective you do now provides no value to you and is likely to destroy your life. The first thing anyone has to do when left by a suicide is to avoid rerunning your life like it was a TV episode. If you are going to use your past experience to help others, great. And that can be very beneficial. But if you're going to use it to rewind and destroy your life, thinking about what you could have changed or done to pass to past events that have already happened, then all I can tell you is to stop thinking about it. Make a conscious decision. You will remember the good and avoid thinking about what could have been. What could have been will never be. And the sooner one accepts that, the better their mental, their mental health will be. Now, I do not say this with any lack of understanding as to how difficult it is. The emotional pain can be excruciating and mind-numbing, never seem to end. I can tell you that reviewing the past will not end the pain and is likely to increase it and cement it. There is only one person, or God, who can remove the pain and provide understanding, and that is the Lord, and His mercy found in the atonement. Don't let His suffering go to waste. Allow Him to fix what's broken and mend the heart and mind. I have found that he is often very quick to provide what you need in case in these cases. Now, it's not going to come all at once necessarily, but I can promise it'll come. Suicide is complex, and often those involved, especially in the case of mental illness, do not understand what they do. They are not in a state of mind to be held accountable. Rest assured that they are not in spiritual prison on the other side of the veil. Often that is one of the reasons that they took their life because the hell was already a reality to them. I would suspect that their greatest regret is the pain that it causes others. Taking their life was only meant to stop pain, not increase it. If you don't want them to continue to suffer, then it would be wise that we stop our own suffering. I know that the Brethren of the Church is pointed to, but often stop short of specifically stating that those who commit suicide are more often than not unaccountable for their actions. I understand the perspective they must maintain, 
Judgment is as complex as suicide itself, and it would not be right to say that everyone who has committed suicide gets a free pass. It is the Lord's call, and his it should be. And that is the reality, what I believe the brethren are trying to communicate. Since I am not a general authority, and I can say that I've been close enough to suicide that I could firmly say I was not in a position to be held accountable, and my altered and skewed reality didn't allow me to be. I would suppose that is the same for most everyone who is mentally ill and takes their life, but I guess I'm really not in position to judge that either. But I believe that we can hold to the idea that most individuals are not sufficiently accountable to be held to the same standard as murder or even one convicted of manslaughter. I'm almost certain they will be held accountable to a much more merciful standard of understanding and forgiveness. But again, it is only because I have been there. I can only recount what I know myself. So I don't tell people about my own point in time where suicide was very real, but today you are going to hear it. Just as a point, if everyone did what I'm about to do, even those who succeed, I think that you would find suicide and blame simply cannot coexist. We do need to reduce risk factors for suicide, make sure we address it before, before it becomes an issue. But blame and shame and pointing fingers should never be a part of the answer. My story is likely to be different than others. Remember, suicide is individual. My background, age, religion, life, family, and a million other things are very likely to be different. But there are often similarities. Given all that, here I go. I think I've said it before that I don't remember not having bipolar. From my earliest memories, I always had the disease and the feelings that go with it. Guess I should point out that I don't have much of a memory for the past. I suppose it's like some type of coping mechanism to avoid reliving the hell of the disease. But I do have some memory for the events. During my teenage years, the disease became acute and extremely difficult. I grew up in a time when mental illness was not something people looked for in young people. While I suffered, I had a pretty good support network. My sweet mother dealt with serious depression and had used prescription medications to ease the symptoms. The medications were certainly not as good as the ones we have now, but they were at least something. This somehow provided some type of support and understanding. My mother also would sit beside me as I would cry myself to sleep for no reason. Not the I hurt my leg type of crying, but the convulsion kind, deep pain. I know that not everyone has this type of support, and I suppose that one of the main reasons suicide never became an option as I was a teenager was her attention to me. I graduated seven, at 17 from high school, but that's just because I ended, entered early as a first grader. This meant that I would have a year and a half before my mission at 19. School, seminary, and regular patterns of living provided some stability. Um, however, that was removed once I graduated high school. The erratic schedule, the lack of clarity, too much time on my hands, and parents who loved me but knew I needed to have some space to be more on my own caused stress that sent my disease into a free fall. I struggled during that year and a half. I'm not sure why my parents didn't just give up. Now, I should probably clarify some things before your imagination runs too wild, given the world we live in. I was never one to give in to drug addiction or break the law of chastity or commit crimes. However, I certainly don't fault anyone for giving in to those things. I think that I simply didn't have access and friends that wouldn't put me in wrong places and situations. I also think often that the Lord really must have placed his hand in my life at this point. I never remember it specifically, but given the disease and the effects I've seen in others, he must have been almost walking side by side with me. Nonetheless, the time was miserable. I eventually received a mission call and began to serve. The initial 
disruption of my schedule, the MTC, and adjusting to missionary work kept the disease at bay for a few months. But the stress of mission life and long day schedules eventually caused it to explode. Again, the Lord must have tempered the disease and allowed me to function. I received a blessing all well every month, maybe more. But I did survive the mission relatively intact. I think it would be best to dedicate another podcast to the mission recounting missionary experience. I eventually returned home, and without the help of the mission routine and spirit that goes with it, things didn't go well emotionally. But luckily, I shortly met my wife not not long after returning, and her concern and love for me allowed me well allowed for me to at least function. And I began life and college, and starting a family family and attending college while working part time is not the best scenario for depression or bipolar. However and I have not said this to this point, I was still undiagnosed at the time and really had no significant clue that I was dealing with such a serious mental illness. Oh, there were some rumblings in the back of my head. Remember, this is a time when mental illness was not spoken about loud. I really didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what to do. I muddled through a few years that I really don't remember. We had two children, and I was in my third or third year of college when it happened. The stress has finally pushed me into a deep, dark place. Anyone who's been there knows what I mean. Couldn't think, function, and my only feelings were dark, and the pain was unbelievable. Let me repeat that. The pain cannot be described. The pain of a deep depression is not like a broken leg. The pain is everywhere, overwhelming and deep. And unlike, unlike a broken leg, it doesn't appear to have any cause. The day came. The day came. Not that I hadn't been thinking about it. Everyone does who's had the disease for any length of time. It's not the immediate pain or suffering that was the real issue. It was seeing no future without it that caused thoughts of, thoughts of my thoughts of suicide. The depression had lasted far longer than any other depression and far deeper. I didn't want to do anything but escape the pain and suffering and a future where I didn't want to exist if I had to continue to suffer. It happened to be Sunday. My wife, of course, had seen all this, but she was wore out as I was, children and a depressed husband. The two little children, and I was completely tuned out. She went to church that day. She says that she didn't know whether I would be there when she came back, but I have to doubt that. Caregivers get into a habit of seeing depression and its effects. While suicide is certainly something that probably concerns them, watching somebody pass through a depression and then coming out of it so many times creates a false positive that they always will come through it. I think that she was simply tired and needed to be uplifted, and so she went to church believing that I would be just fine as I always had been. I will admit that suicide had become a real option. I had a plan. I was in a terrible place. Not sure that the method matters, but most men use guns. I think two things stopped the action. One, I was too exhausted to want to act at that point. And somewhere in the process, something changed inside of me. And I could see my family and children very differently. I would have to say that the Lord reached down and saved me at that point. I later joined my wife at church and recounted the experience. I can't tell you exactly what happened. But I went to the doctor the next day and began treatment. The treatment story, I will reserve for another time. I know this doesn't happen for everyone. People follow through with suicide every day. You might ask why the Lord doesn't just step in every time. I don't know. Maybe he tries, but sometimes the darkness is too thick. 
However, there are some things I do know from the experience. I don't know if any of this will help someone who has lost a loved one, friend, wife, daughter, son, husband, grandparent. I could go on, but I really hope it does provide some understanding. The first thing is that depression changes the mind, and you live in another reality. Depressed people don't see death and suicide as we do in a normal state. The body has a survival instinct and a strong one. When I was in a deep depression, that instinct really didn't seem to exist. I'm sure that it did, but rarely did I ever feel it. Sleep is really an escape from the pain and suffering. That is why we sleep all the time. Anything to avoid feeling the pain and suffering. In the depressed mind, death is just a more permanent type of sleep. I don't think that I would ever have thought about waking. I don't think that I would ever have thought about waking up because I didn't want to. If you knew every time you woke up from sleep, you'd be marched into a dark room and beaten. You would do almost anything to stay asleep. What I might now, number two, what I'm about to say might be a little controversial, but it's the way I felt. I couldn't feel love in my depressions. Didn't exist. If it did, I wasn't, it wasn't in the same form as I feel it now. I couldn't love myself or anyone. I didn't have any attachments to relationships because in some sense, it requires that I care about somebody beyond myself and I couldn't. I don't think that it didn't exist, but it was as if it was covered miles deep in darkness. I just simply couldn't access it. Three, I couldn't feel the spirit in the way we do in a normal manner. The spirit couldn't come in feelings. Anything positive or uplifting was covered or simply not available. I could hear it in my head, but I could also hear all the negative thoughts coming from my feelings. I have to say, that which we feel makes us who we are. It is more true than any thought. Lucifer also seemed to have greater access to me than when I was in my normal state. I know that's hard to hear, but I really can't explain it any other way. And four, I know that in a normal state of mind, most of our action comes from thoughts to feelings, then to action. It was not the case in depressions. Emotion turned to thought, and then to action. It felt as if somebody had taken the controls away from me. Not that I couldn't think rationally at least a little bit. I was a different person inside, different in every way thought about things differently, felt differently, everything was different. Now, I, sounds, I know that sounds like some type of split personality or schizophrenia. In some ways, I think that it's similar. My wife always said she had three husbands and only really liked one of them. Now, having said all that, and I could say much more, discussion needs to move to talking about suicide with those you know are affected by depression and bipolar. I strongly support having the discussion with anyone who is mentally ill or struggling in similar ways before they get too far down the road. And if you can, have the talk today. And all that might, that some might think that a discussion might cause suicide. I'm not a psychologist, so I wouldn't know the mechanism, but I don't think that would be true. Anyone who's had mental illness for any length of serious time has probably thought about it. So I doubt that bringing it up would be a catalyst for the suicide to occur. If it concerns you, then seek out answers from a medical professional. I would have benefited from the discussion. For me, the worst thing was not discussing it. But I don't know if my wife could have discussed it with me. The idea was so distressing to her that I doubt she could have brought herself to the moment to ask if I had thought about it. I know that it would be very difficult for someone to hear from their loved one that they had thought about suicide seriously. Helplessness is such an unnerving feeling. And if someone tells you that they've thought about it, then what? What can you do but worry about every time you see a change in their mood? 
How do you know when to act and when to be concerned and when it isn't a concern? I don't think that the discussion is difficult. I believe that it is the ramifications of knowing that is difficult. The worrying and added stress can be quite a mountain to climb. Just as a note, I generally don't do this, but there are some good resources online for this issue. One site is called suicidepreventionlifeline.org, and there are many others. I mentioned that one just as a starting place. The church also has some wonderful resources. I recommend researching the topic and learning how to talk about suicide, and then creating a plan with the individual to reduce both your helplessness and their stress. And it in any case, anyone with a mental illness and those who care for them need to have this discussion and create a plan. My heart hurts for those who have experienced a suicide and the resulting loss and grief. The human condition is that the body mourns for the loss with physical pain, mental anguish, and many other difficult symptoms. Sometimes the healing takes time even with the Lord's help and mercy. For those comforting, be compassionate, be kind. Be loving and allow them to cry, to talk, to be angry, and most of all, grieve. More often than not, someone just needs to be a listening ear. You don't need to attempt to remove the pain. Just bear it with them. Now, this has been a difficult subject and a difficult time frame. I'm sure difficult words to hear. But please, talk to your loved one, if not today soon. To close this one out today... I will use the words that I that may be the most appropriate at this point, even though I use them every work, every week. The Lord requires the fight, no matter how small. So keep fighting and he will provide. Until next time. It is my hope that we will talk a little bit about treatment next time, and I will go through my experiences of treatment and what it meant to be treated with the disease. Um, we'll talk to you next time.